It's great to see such an august group in front of me. I was um, I was standing there dazed, and somebody asked me before, "What are you What are you doing? You're just Are you just staring at people?" And I was like, "I don't know." Yeah. And um, I think he said, "Are you staring at someone?" Um, and then so I was like, "No, I and I forgot everyone's name over the last two years and the masks and all that. I'm just trying." And for like most people, even in this room, who are like some of the people I know the best, it's still like four or five seconds before I can like pull up your name. Like people like, like Chad will walk up to me and I'll just be like, I know him, I, I know this man. Like he's like a friend. We've been doing this together for years. And I'll be like, Chad. And, but he's like three seconds down the hall for me at that point. You know, I'm like, so I said, hey, ambiguously, you know, hey, you guys. So uh, please put on name tags is the moral of that story, not just for me, um, but for everybody else. And I'll get to why in a minute. I also was planning on having like a really well put together talk for you, but I, uh, this is what happens. I get sick on Mondays. It probably makes sense. I exert myself on Sunday. I was holding it off and then I get sick. So you aren't going to want to kiss me on the mouth tonight. I have uh, the holy kiss thing. We can, we can use, do that metaphorically tonight. Is there a time thing? Aaron, if you could come tell me what time is supposed to be done, that'd be great. Um, okay, here's what we're going to talk about tonight. There's a sheet on your table. I'm hopefully going to say some things relatively efficiently, and then I'm going to actually let you guys talk about this at your table, and I'm not going to set it up so that there's going to be right answers. It's really going to hopefully be a talk where you talk about things, okay? <clears throat> I've been doing ministry as a vocation, so the way I feed myself as well as the work I do for about 20 years. I did it for about six before that. And in that time, there's been a lot of discussion about how churches develop and grow and do ministry, sometimes referred to as the church growth movement. One of the crassest things in the church growth movement to measure how you're doing as a church was called the ABCs of church growth. It always made me throw up a little in my mouth, but it's also like not unimportant, right? The ABCs, there's, you can get a sheet on your table there if you haven't pulled one already, stand for attendance, buildings and capital, right? Butts in the seats, buildings that people can come into, and capital. And on one level, you're kind of like, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. And it's partly because it's not, okay? It's also the sort of thing like, you know, like a lot of you are in professions where you can't measure exactly the thing you wish you could measure itself. It's basically impossible to measure it. And so you have to measure some other things that you think are going to get you what you want. Right. So generally speaking, a church's attendance is not a bad thing to measure. You know, um, there was the incident with David counting the armies and like the plague and all that. But I, I, there could be differences, you know. Um, and then buildings like are not immaterial. I mean, I don't mean that just as a pun. Uh, like they, they are a place. So people scatter. Right. The reason why spiritual leaders are often called shepherds in the Bible is because people scatter. Right. And so how do you, like, how do you gather, how do you keep the flock together? How do you gather people? And actually, buildings are really conducive to that. It turns out human beings for, like, thousands of years have thought that, you know? Um, and so buildings are kind of, like, an important thing, even though they're kind of, like, they're not the church. They're not the spiritual work of God, right? And same thing's true of capital. Like, how much money do you have? That sounds really spiritual, right? But, like, that's how we fund ministries and do all kinds of stuff that is good, right? I mean, where do you think these cookies came from, people? You know what I'm saying? So... Um, and so in one sense, it was like, measure that, and if you measure that and what gets that, then you're going to have the resources you need to do what you need to do, and you're going to you're gonna know how, thing, how well things are going. Does that make sense? Um, then for me, in the 1990s, 
came the spiritual gift inventories, right? Like, how do you figure out more of like, here's what this talk is about. I should have told you this already. Like, there's this place where Moses is getting sent to Egypt, and he doesn't really want to go because it's kind of a big job. And he says, Lord, I don't know why you think they're going to believe me or this is going to work, okay? Not that I've ever said this to the Lord, but Moses said this to the Lord. And, and so God says to him, what's in your hand, right? Now, if this was an African-American church, I would say that phrase 34 times and unify the entire message rhetorically around that, and you would go away actually remembering what I said tonight. But instead, I'm just going to use it as an opening illustration because I have no rhythm. So, like, the idea is, like, you know, and what he had in his hand was what every shepherd has in his hand, a wooden stick, right? He had a staff. And so God's like, all right, well, throw it down. And he makes it into this, like, apparently fairly scary-looking stick because it says, he throws it down, and it says, Moses ran away. <laughs> like, ah! You know, like, so you're going to go save everybody from Egypt, right? This guy that shrieks at the, you know, at least he didn't turn into a spider. That would have been more discouraging. But, like, but then he picks it up. And so, and so God gives him, like, these miraculous signs to give people. But the first thing God says is, what's in your hand? Like, what do you actually have in your hand to use, Right? In that sense, like, one of the things that we have to ask as the church is we've been given this commission to make disciples of all nations. We've been called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've been called to feed and care for and protect Christ's flock. We've been given these commissions. I just checked to see if I was running out of batteries there. And it's a lot of work. It's a big job, right? So one of the things you do when you're about to do a big job is you say, well, what do we have? Like, what, what are our assets as, um, as Wesley said to Aniga Montoya when he woke up after having Max's miracle pill? Right? And the answer was, as you all know, right? You know, Fessic strength, my steel, your brains. And he goes, impossible. If I had a month to prepare, maybe I could come up with something, right? And then he says, if, I, if, if I, we only had a wheelbarrow, that would be something. And he's like, why do we put the wheelbarrow the albino head? Over the albino, I think, right? And so he's like, well, why didn't you listen among our assets, right? And he's like, what I wouldn't give for a Holocaust cloak. He's like, Woof, you know? He's like, okay, here we go, right? And so, like, part of the joke of that is, other than I probably shouldn't be able to recite that and not John 17, is <laughs> that, like, the first question of somebody who, like, knows how to get things done, which Wesley is supposed to be, is what do we have? What are our assets, right? And it turns out you have more assets than you think you do. Even things that seem insignificant, like a wheelbarrow, right? What's a wheelbarrow to a giant, right? But it turns out it was important for the uh, thing. I still, to this day, do not understand why the wheelbarrow was part of that plan. Why Fessick couldn't just walk forward, but maybe he was standing on something. I don't know. Whatever. The point is that as the church, we often overlook some of our, actually not just our insignificant assets, but some of our greatest assets, right? So, like, honestly, our, our attendance building and capital, that's not our greatest assets, right? The fact that people look to our church because a lot of people go to church here, that's not one of our biggest assets. I mean, it's something. It gets us attention, and with attention, you can do things. Or buildings, like this building isn't our greatest asset. If I had to, if I had to choose between this building and Frank Pekovich, I'd pick Frank Pekovich. It's straightforward. And he's not, he's not the only person in the room that I would say that about, right? And, and it's because, like, I mean, first of all, this building's only worth a few million dollars, and a human being is an unrepeatable, like, divinely gifted person, right? So just straight up, everybody's, I'd pick everybody over the building. But in addition to that, like, in terms of the assets that God has given us, right, 
what we each have is more than that. And so like in the 1990s when I was going through like seminaries, well, no, I was, well, by 2000 I was going to seminary. Anyway, um, we did these spiritual gift inventories, right? Who knows, who's ever done a spiritual gift inventory, right? Spiritual gift inventories are great. They were designed for pastors because we need to plug people into stuff like nobody's business, okay? Listen, we need something that plug and plays. And so spiritual gift inventories were ordered around three spiritual gift lists in the scriptures and all of the ministries in the church I need volunteers for. Okay, those, that's how that thing was worked out. So that people could take them and then I could be like, look. So in, in, like, in one way, there's a benefit to this because it wasn't like, hey, can you sweep and can you cook and can you preach just arbitrarily, right? But like people had always been selecting people on the basis of spiritual gifts. Like I would be like, hey, you're really good at that. Would you want to do more of it? Spiritual gift inventories allowed you, if you were a church that had benefited from the church growth movement, and you'd grown beyond 150 people, and so now the pastor couldn't just naturally, in getting to know everybody, figure out what people were good at, and then get them into stuff. So now you needed some administrative way to do that, hence the spiritual gift inventory. Who wants to take a guess at the first year the first spiritual gift inventory came out? Anybody want to take a shot at that one? When did the first one come out? What year? 98 we've got. Anybody want to raise him? Mike Beresford probably knows. He's just very modest. Okay, the first spiritual, you got anybody else? This is the most fun you're going to have tonight, okay? So just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <clears throat> 1972. 1972. Yeah, okay. So gift of prophecy over here. Let's talk to Annie afterwards. Um yeah, so it's been a long time, right? Like, and it came right out of that Pasadena Church Growth Movement. But here's the thing. Um, that's really not, that's not, look, we think, well, how can you say the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Nick, are not our greatest asset? They're not our greatest asset, right? And here's, here's why that's not blasphemy, okay? Because that sounds like blasphemy, right? But it's not blasphemy. Here's why. Because you have the gospel, and that's of the grace of God itself, right? And what if the gospel is a bigger gift than your gift of helps, right? And also, literally everything that's in your hand, see, I worked that in again, is of the grace of God. It's a gift, right? In, in the Bible, I mean, single people never tired of, tire of hating hearing me say this because it is annoying, but singleness is referred to as a charismata, a gift. So is marriage, charismata, a gift. Like, and children are referred to as gifts in the Bible. Like, and, I mean, put, figure that one out, you know what I mean? So like, like, all of these things that God gives is, like, so in, in liturgical traditions like the, the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or, or, or Lutherans or whatever, they, they, you'll hear this phrase a lot, the grace of God, the grace of God, and you're like, that is a generic phrase that means nothing, right? One of the reasons reason, things I hate about that phrase is that people just repeat it and repeat it, and I have no idea what they mean by it and what they're referring to, and it annoys me, right? But here's what's good about that phrase. It's designed to catch, catch everything right? It's like everything that God has done that is good is generosity and therefore grace. And so the grace of God is everything, right? Everything, the food, the spiritual gifts, the capital, the building and the people and the, the vocations and the snow, God help us, and the tulips and everything is the grace of God, right? The Lord's Supper, the gospel itself, the scriptures, Dave's beard, everything is the grace of God. Okay, so it's very easy for us to say, oh, these spiritual gifts that sound like they're the thing where we're supposed to do ministry, that's the grace of God. It is the grace of God. It's, it's one of God's many graces, and it's not just those 14 or 22, however you count it. 
So a few years back, this is 20 to 40 years ago now, a number of economists were looking at the world and they were looking at how poverty, like very, like less than a dollar a day poverty was incredibly persistent in the world. I remember when I was a child, essentially what I was taught in school is the reason why people were poor is because of the ecological catastrophe of human fertility. That because human beings kept having children, we were overpopulating the earth. That was producing more children than could be, than could actually survive based on the resources that we had. And so that's why forever huge portions of the human population would be poor and sick and die and starve. Which sounded plausible, right? It's good Malthusianism. But there was this um, uh, scholar in Bangladesh who said, wait a second. These are human beings, right? And, and actually, human beings are more complicated than any machine we have ever created. And so they're not just a liability, even the poor ones, they're assets. What if we thought about that way? What if we said, all of these eaters aren't just worthless people that should have never been born who are an ecological disaster with big carbon footprints? What if we thought of them as, now I don't think this guy was a Christian to say an unrepeatable act of divine grace, but he said they're an asset or they're a, a, they're a form of capital, they're a form of wealth. The people, the poor people are a form of wealth. And so this is the guy that came up with microloans, right? And so he's like, what if we gave one of these eaters that should just die 200 bucks to start a little business, to buy a little pump to cultivate a quarter of an acre so that that person was able to cultivate and water and irrigate a quarter of an acre. What would happen if we began to do that and, and treat people like assets instead of liabilities, right? Well, what happened is over the last 45 years, 45 years or so, half of the global extremely poor came to the level of global poor but not so poor you're about to die. From we don't know where we're going to get food to we can contemplate buying medicine for our children and send them to school, right? Which will increase what those that next group of kids can do. Right now, this became popular to talk about in economic spheres as human capital and social capital. Human capital is basically anything that you can do, that you yourself can do. So, if we took away, so for example, I'm like a semi-wealthy middle-class person, right? If you took everything I own away from me—my car, my computer, even all of my family—you took away my house, every dollar I have in the bank, every possession, even my rifles, and you just dumped me downtown in a pair of boxers, okay? How long would it be before I was in an apartment with a job with a month of income, emergency income saved up? And I couldn't talk to anybody I knew. So I couldn't come to any of you and ask for help. I only had what I had in myself. How long would it be before I was in a house with clothes, with a job, with some money in the bank? Not very long, about a couple months maybe. Maybe, unless I got some weird sickness like, right? Why? Because an enormous amount has been invested in me, in my life. I've invested in me, but a lot of other people have invested in me. There's a lot of asset in me, right? I'm not, right? And so I can do tons of things, and, and like more than 80% of my personal wealth is inside of me. Do you understand? In addition to that, right, I know people. The social capital, what we can do together, right? And so like when I was redoing my bathroom, which still isn't done, those of you who have skills, um, you know, I was like, I called some friends, and I was like, okay, I need people with no skills 
but who don't mind dust, basically. To, well, we need to tear this thing apart. And a couple guys came over, we did that. I was like, okay, I, rudimentary wiring. Who knows how to do that? And somebody's like, I know how to do that. And then um, I need somebody who knows how to fix rudimentary wiring that was done by someone who didn't know how to do it, but thought they knew how to do it. And somebody's like, I can do that. <clears throat> and like, so anywhere I'm, you know, just moving along. I need somebody who can put up drywall and can measure this and cut that and like, because I know all these different people. Because my wife was like, Nick, are you really going to do this? I was like, yeah. I was like, I mean, I'm not going to do any of it. But all the people I know can do all the little pieces. And if you line up all the little pieces, it all gets done, you know? Here's the problem. In a church of 100 people, that works organically, right? But there's also the limitation that you've only got 100 people. One of the problems is, is that when you become a larger church, you lose the personal connection of that, and you lose the brokering of it. Right? It becomes really inefficient. Hayek won a Nobel Prize for saying, the reason why you can't have a planned economy is because all the really important knowledge is, is like literally in the showroom. It's like at the lo most local possible level. So when you try to plan something in, this, in like the central government, you get everything wrong. It's why like the Soviets used to set the price of shoes and it was less than the cost of the materials to make the shoes. Right? Well, that's, I don't know if you know this, that's true at churches too. Like our, st our staff spends a bunch of time Aaron, you still haven't brought me that time yet. Um, a bunch of like, a, like uh, time planning in the central office of the church what we're going to do, right? And I think a lot of Christians at our church spend a lot of time expecting us at the central office to plan what we're going to do, right? But here's the thing. Our actual job has nothing to do with central planning at all. Do you realize this? Hasn't that happened already? What's? Oh, wait, that's when, wait, okay. That's when we're done with this session, though, right? So if we want discussion, okay, got it. I need a cookie probably, too. Okay. So th the actual commission Jesus has given us is to make disciples of people and to, in addition to that, care about them in love. So as James says, you can't say, go be fed. Let all things be well with your soul, right? And not care about people's needs. So we're called to a kind of holistic love of our neighbor and our enemies and the brethren, that is other believers, recognizing their human needs, but recognizing that par excellence, their most absolute need and fullest need is to be Christ's disciple, to believe in the gospel and be shaped in its image. Does that make sense? And so I don't know why we need central planning for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, in, that's like on your street. That's at your work. That's, you know what I'm saying? And also caring for people. Like, the idea that the church will care for people better than the people of the church is probably not true. In fact, one of the things we often do is, like, if somebody in the church has a need, first thing we do is talk to their small group. Not just because their small group might be able to help them directly, but also because we're like, okay, what's really going on? Because who knows what's going on? The most local possible level is who knows what's going on, right? And so, um, yeah, so for a lot of reasons, we have to get beyond this idea that, like, what the church has is its attendance. We have a lot of people go to church here. We have a big building. We have a lot of money. We actually do have all three of those things. I want to tell you, it's great, okay? I'm glad we have this place. I'm glad we can pay for stuff. I mean, I, was, I told Annette, you know, like, three chocolate chips per cookie. And she was like, no, Nick, we have the money to do more, Right? Yeah. Thanks for getting me a non-chocolate chip cookie, Kent. 
and wine and water. He got, he got me water. Viva la Wisconsin. At least it's not a beer, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm trying to preach here. Um, where were we? Okay, so those things are great. And, and we, part of our social capital together is that we, we commit to work together and we have this building that we share and use for ministry. We have all these people that come here, which is great, and we have money that we use for ministry, which is very important, okay? <clears throat> but that's not our greatest wealth. And we all have spiritual gifts. Like the God, the Spirit, has appointed gifts to his people in the church just as he wanted to apportion them. And those are powerful gifts that are useful in ministry, that are important to use. And those are not our greatest gifts. Right? It turns out that when Jesus called us to himself, he didn't call us and say, listen, the, your, your money and your spiritual gifts are the things I want used in my service. Right? That's really not how he talks, is it? No, he's kind of like, I want you in my service. And you in within you is so much more. So for for example, let me just give you a couple examples and I want to try to give you some time to talk. Cuz if you're like Nick, this doesn't sound very Christian. Like I don't I've never seen the phrase social and human capital in the Bible. And you're right. You have not. Right? But there's this place where the apostle Paul says I think the guy's name is Rufus. It's in Acts, I think it's in Acts 16 where he says um, honor Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord, and his mother. And then he says right after that, he says, who is a mother to me? The Apostle Paul. All right, the Apostle Paul said that. He said about this woman in Rome or somewhere around there, he said, he said, you, you guys honor her because she was, like, she was like a mother to me. You know? I, I suspect by this time, it's like Paul had lost his mother, or he was, you know, he traveled on many continents and to have a woman say, Paul, sit down, eat, have some, eat, right? And like, just cared for him. Um, that was, that was that a spiritual gift, right? Did she have the spiritual gift of mothering? That's not any of the lists, right? But it's the grace of God. Does that make sense? Um, or Paul says, in, when he was in the province of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, he said that he and his companions felt the weight of death on them in terms of the sufferings and the trials, especially in the city of Corinth. And he said, they felt the sense of death in their souls. And he said, but then we received comfort. It says that in chapter 2. But he doesn't say until a little, little later how he was comforted. Right? And, the, and the re, what he says later is, he said, we were comforted by the coming of Titus. That is, when his friend came. So we're, right there were places where Paul would go and preach, and he couldn't, he couldn't preach and eat right? Because nobody paid him for his preaching. It turned out they didn't like it, right? And so he would make tents as his job, and that's how they would eat. And so in a number of places, he would do that part-time, but then when Timothy or Titus would get there, they would make the tents, and Paul would preach. Now think about that. Think about becoming a missionary. I became a missionary. What did you do? I was a missionary. What did you do? Well, I would minister to people after the apostle Paul had been there, and he'd go to a new place, and then I would go where he was, and I would sew all day so that we could eat. That's what he did. I mean, that's, I mean, you're like Timothy, the great missionary. Well, Timothy and Titus, the great missionaries, and Timothy's wife probably too, spent most of their time sitting around sewing tents. That was the grace of God, right? That was the asset that God had given, maybe through Priscilla and Aquila, depending on some things we don't know in the Bible, so that they had gotten the skill. People in the Mediterranean used tents all the time, right? And so this was a thing. They had a skill. They were like, 
craftsmen. What I want you to see is, is that in the local church, there's two issues. The first is, if we get too focused on being a big church with money or spiritual gifts, as great as they are, we will not realize 75% of the grace of God that is in our hand. What's in your hand, right? It's more than you think, right? Your experiences of suffering, that's a staff in your hand, right? Your, um, your age, your experience, that, that's what's in your hand, right? Um, your skills, what you've learned to do, your craftsmanship, all, your vocation, that's in your hand, right? Um, there's so much more in your hand. And us, like, knowing, what each, knowing each other and knowing what each other can do and connecting with each other and doing all those things together, that's in your hand. I mean, the, most churches in America, they're under 100 people. That's how they survive. Like, they don't, pay, they don't pay a plumber. They get Bill to come over and do the plumbing, and he's only half good at it, you know? And people do just do stuff for each other. I mean, I, I know Estelle, when, when her dad was a, was a pastor in Montana, people, I mean, people didn't even bring money. They just brought stuff they'd killed, you know, for them. I mean, like, just they'd bring eggs and half part of an elk or something, you know, and they just, they just made it work. They did the stuff. And I've seen this a number of times, like, I mean, even for myself, like, I take some of my, my greatest joy doing stuff that is not what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. Like, like one of my favorite um, afternoons of ministry was I went to this widow in the church's house and I trimmed branches for her because she couldn't pay $1,700 to get somebody to trim branches for her, you know? And, um, but I, that was, I had something in my hand. I had a, had a 24-foot Japanese pole saw. I mean, literally, in my hand, you know? So here's what I'd like you to discuss. And then I'm going to say just one more thing about what's at the bottom of the page. Like, those two first boxes of assets, what's in our hand, are real. And we have to steward them well. But the other two boxes of your human capital and our social capital are also the grace of God. They're also the assets that he's given us. It's the wealth that we have at Christians. It's part of, to put it in Matthew 25 cents, it's the talents that the master has left us with. Right? And that's where that word comes from in English, right? From the word talenton in Matthew 25. What the master has left us with, it's everything. And so what, what do we have? Who do you know in this church? Like who, who is sitting right next to you that has incredible gifts but they're not spiritual gifts. They're just like, they're abilities. It's, there's, they're, they're disciplines. They're, they're sufferings. They're all kinds of things, things that actually have a value. There's so many things in your life, friends, that has value in doing our work of making disciples and loving people. Little things. And in some of you, it's combinations of things. It's because of this thing, this thing, and this thing. Those things combined in you make it very special in its use for God. Does that make sense? And, and we have to quit we have to quit, like, if you think of, like, people in ministry, like, the worst thing that could happen in this church, if people saw, like, Nicole, Mike, Nick, and Devin. It took me, like, two seconds to pull up Devin's name. That's <laughs> not good, right? We need somebody who's good with names, you know? Uh, and you're like, that's, see, those guys, so I'm a, like, a lesser version of that or something like that. That's, like, the dumbest thing, right? Because Everybody is shaped for the thing. I mean, this is Ephesians 2, right? You believe the gospel, what, for, and what's God going to do with you? Good works he's prepared beforehand to do with you, but he says you were created or crafted to do those good works. Not just generally you, but you in particular 
are the result of a craftsmanship of God. He's made you very specifically. You're custom made. You're not assembly line made. You are custom made for a very specific set of things. For you. And you are the great wealth of this church. High Point Church is wealthy in the billions of dollars. Like, we have a couple million in the bank. If you had all our different accounts together, we have a couple million dollars in the bank. Fantastic. It's so great. I, I mean, I say that's probably sarcastically, but it's really great to not sit around wondering if we can keep the doors open. But listen, that is maybe 20% of the wealth of our church. This church is wealthy in the billions, in all of the latent wealth in all of you. And I believe that we can steward it better. I really believe that. And I, want, I, wanted, and I don't have a big plan because, remember what I said about central planning, I don't have a big plan. What I want to do is I want to put the seed of that thought in you and let you discuss it and let you think about it. Let me see two last things really quick. The first is you can see at the bottom, work is work and rest is rest. Some of you who work really hard for the Lord um, have forgotten that your work for the Lord is work. It's not rest. It's not work and rest and on the side, all my volunteering. It turns out that for an embodied human being, all there is is work and rest. Everything is work or rest. <laughs> you understand? And when you serve at the church, you're working. Now, God has given a dispensation for Levites in the Bible, right, that you can work on the Sabbath day because somebody has to work on the Sabbath day. But that doesn't mean Levites weren't supposed to rest, right? They were on for several months, and then they were off entirely for several months right? It's like firefighters. Like, somebody has to put out the fire no matter when the fire happens. And so you got to work, like, 28-hour shifts and, like, like eat pizza and sleep near the brass poles. But then you're, like, off for four days, right? And so for some of you, you need to remember that work is work and rest is rest. And I want to I want to give you the right to apply that to your own life, even though that's terrifying for me to say. And then the second thing is, some people be like, yeah, Nick, that's true. But, like, isn't isn't doing ministry for the Lord hard work? I mean, didn't Jesus work hard? Didn't the Apostle Paul work hard? Didn't all the saints, weren't they hard workers? The answer is yes, they were. They worked really hard, right? They didn't work really hard for their salvation. They worked really hard because it was pleasing to them to work in the vineyard of the Lord, okay? But there is a, there is a good heart and there is a bad heart. You know what I mean? There is a, there's the wrong kind of working hard and the right kind of working hard. And you need to be able to discern the difference. And that is not this talk. Okay? But there is a kind of weariness that is not helped with rest, to quote, quote Jill Reese. And when you're experiencing that, you're not doing the good kind of hard. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a good sore. You know, like there's a good sore and a bad sore. Like after you work out, and there's like a good sore. And you're like, that's a good sore, right? It's similarly, spiritually speaking. And if you have trouble discerning which is which, um... This is why we have all this spiritual capital in the church of people who do know the difference, and they're probably sitting right at your table. So I want to give you the last few minutes here to discuss at your tables this sheet. Part of it is like, just write in those boxes some of the things that you think are part of the grace of God to you, right? You are at a church that has ABCs. That's fantastic. You probably have some really cool spiritual gifts at your table. Find out what they are and the people. What are the spiritual gifts of the people at your table that you don't know about, right? Because that's part of our social capital, you knowing it, right? And then what's the human capital? What's not ABC? What's not a spiritual gift? But what is a wealth that God has given you? 
experience, expertise, craftsmanship, suffering, right? And then social capital. What do we do? What can we do together because of our connections with one another that we haven't really thought about, right? And then if you want to talk about the last two, you can. So let me pray, and then let's do that. God, I pray that you'd use the words that I've said um, in ways that will help build up your church, honor your own name, and help us to be um, those who invest your wealth beautifully. Help us to give ourselves entirely to you in the work of your kingdom. Not, not working to be loved, but working in your love and on its behalf. Help us to know what is the right kind of good hard work and the bad kind in your name. And help us to see what you really have put in our hand and to use it and to not be limited by standards of religious organization that have come into the church that were completely unknown in the Bible, like the ABCs in a way, and even to not be blinded by one category that we understand from all the other ones you've given us. Help us to not just think of the spiritual gifts, but of all the gifts of grace so we can use them all. And we pray that in doing so, you would give us success in the lives of those that you are ministering to. In Jesus' name. Okay, hopefully this is a helpful discussion. Can we have like just a few people just kind of yell out um, private facts you learned about people? I'm just kidding. Like um, something, just something that's like a asset, a grace of God that isn't a spiritual gift or an ABC. Just like let's let's just do like 20 seconds of you yelling out examples. Okay, be bold. Go. Being a nerd, great. Because who do nerds like? Nerds, right? Yeah. Yeah, Ben was saying he has the gift of saying no. Appreciate that. What else? Come on. Being a caregiver, great. Cooking, love made edible, very good. What else? Driving stick shift, yeah. It's good. I saw, have you seen that sticker? There's like a picture of a stick shift and it's like a millennial security device. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what else? Hey, drive what? Project management. Okay, so, so good. You try to do something together with people, super important. Music, great. I heard somebody say, don't say it. Somebody really say that? <laughs> what? You're really good at watching YouTube videos? Oh, and then doing what is done on them, like watching, like, here's how to fix your dryer. Great, I could, please come to my house. Okay. Um, what else? Yeah. Jack of all trades, great. Don't raise your hand, just yell them out. This is, we're doing this charismatic style. Listening, great. Financial assistance, very good. Software development. Sewing. That's great. Do you see what we're doing here? Good. And then, um, okay, so great. We're, I'm supposed to be down here. So um, let me say one of the things. Remember, right, anything that can be functionally converted to love is a, is a grace of God, is a gift. It's a wealth that you have. It's what's in your hand. 
And when we do it together, we help each other connect with needs, then we maximize our human and our social capital, these enormously broad and general gifts of God. That is all of the grace of God, which is all of the all the talent, all the asset these guys. Thank you.